I would like to welcome Mr. Ray Hammond, who is a futurologist, and today he will speak with us about futurology and the seven key drivers of the future. So first of all, Mr. Hammond, what is futurology? Well, I use the word futurologist about myself really as a deliberate piece of irony, as mockery, because how can you have an ology of the future? A science of the future. You can't. It's a contradiction in terms like military intelligence or European harmony. I mean, it's ridiculous. But the reason that I use such a strange word to describe what I do is that one of my theses is that we have no language for the technological future. So just as we don't have a good word for somebody who studies the future... In America, they call it a futurist rather than a futurologist. But I think the term futurist implies a belief in the future, as if it's somehow going to be a wonderful, better place. I don't take that view. So I use the word futurologist, which actually was termed, which, which was coined by the writer Aldous Huxley in 1946. He, and that's in the OED. He describes himself I suppose I am a futureologist, but although I'm an admirer of Aldous Huxley, brilliant man, brilliant man, I think he should have said, I am a futurographer. Because actually a futurographer, somebody who writes about the future, is a far better way of describing what I do. It's much more accurate because in essence I'm a writer and I write fiction that's set in the future and I write non-fiction that describes the possible future. Futurists, futurologists, futurographers can't predict anything in the future, obviously. What we try to do is to identify the big trends in science, in life, in the world, which are going to shape the future. But of course, individual events, like the credit crunch, can't be predicted. I couldn't predict next year whether there's going to be terrible hurricanes or not. But I can say that the trend of climate chaos makes them more likely than not. Can you explain us now what you mean by seven key drivers of the future? Well, over the last 25 years that I've been writing about the future, and that's one part of my output for my research, the other part of my output is speaking. He's giving public presentations for corporations, governments and universities like Oxford. That's actually part of the output. And over the 25 years, I've identified seven major trends that I think are going to shape the future between now and the middle of the 21st century. And because I have the chance several times a week all around the world to test these ideas out on audiences but perhaps none are quite as demanding as an Oxford audience, I find that I'm able to test in an empirical way whether my ideas, whether my identification of the trends is solid. Because at the end of every discussion, there is a debate with me about what do I think about that and the audience feels this. So these seven trends have emerged over 25 years of work And I believe they are setting the foundation for life for the next two or three generations. The first key trend that is shaping the future of the world 
is world population explosion. We are today, 2008, late 2008, about 6.7 billion people on the planet. The United Nations says that by the year 2030, it will be between 8.2 and 8.5 billion people. And in the middle of the century, 2050, somewhere between 9 and 12 billion people. And that's allowing for things like AIDS, malaria, cholera, diphtheria, all of the masculars, the United Nations says that the population of the world will almost double by the time we're in the middle of this century. Well, if that's true, and I think it is, how are we going to find the water for so many people? How are we going to find the food? How are we going to find the space for them to live? How are we going to find the energy? Now, this clearly is a trend that is going to shape all of the other trends over the next 50 years. Most of that population growth is in Africa, but not all of it. Quite a lot of it in Southeast Asia, quite a lot of it in Latin America, some in Middle Americas, almost nothing in Europe, almost nothing in North America. But in Africa in particular, we have a tragedy waiting to happen. I mean, a tragedy that's been partly caused by the West, because in the last eight years, of the George W. Bush administration, the United States has removed from its overseas aid program all subsidy for contraception to Africa and to other parts of the world. In the 90s, there were huge amounts of free contraception being provided by the United States AIDS delivery team. But George W. Bush wanted to placate the nutcases of the religious right, people who really should be ashamed of the effects of their desires. And as a result of that, there has been a complete abandonment of efforts of contraception by the USA, the world's biggest aid provider in Africa since the year 2000. I hope and I'm confident that Barack Obama will reverse that. The second key driver of the future is climate chaos. Now, I don't like using the phrase climate change because it suggests there may be winners as well as losers. Well, I think there's almost all losers in climate chaos. And one of the big problems is that even if we could magically stop all the output of greenhouse gases tomorrow, we've got at least 30 years worth of increasingly extreme weather we're going to suffer because there's a 30-year lag in the carbon cycle. It takes 30 years after carbon is first emitted for it to be absorbed into the atmosphere, then into the oceans, and then re-emitted as warmer, moist air. So essentially, the extreme weather we're suffering now comes from the greenhouse gases we emitted in the 1970s. And between then and today, we're emitting four times as many greenhouse gases. So we have got some really extreme weather to come. But the thing that makes me very optimistic about the future of our attention to climate chaos is the election of Barack Obama. Uh, I believe that we will now have a global leader to actually take us forward to a way of reducing our contribution to atmospheric heating. Because even though there are people who say, well, uh, Greenhouse global warming is a natural phenomenon. It comes from sunspots or just a natural cycle. 
it is clear that even if they're right, and 99% of scientists think they're not right, but even if they're right, surely we've got a duty not to make it worse. And that's why we need to reduce our output of greenhouse gases. The third key driver of the future is the energy crisis. And now that I've said we're going to double the world's population, at a time when we must reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by up to 70% compared to 1992, you'll see why there's a crisis in energy. Where are we going to find all this additional energy from? And how can we do it without emitting more and more greenhouse gases? Well, actually, I think that's one of the easiest problems to solve. It won't be cheap. But I think it's easy. It's clear to everybody that we have the energy we need in the atmosphere around us, in the sun's strength, in the wind, in the tides, in the waves, in hydro, in geothermal. We just haven't had to harness it before. And countries like Poland are saying, oh, but we've got so much coal, we want to use that. When we say, well, OK, we'll go on using it, but at the same time, you've got to invest in wind and sustainable and renewables. And I think it's a duty of all nations, developed and developing, to begin the changeover, a switchover from dirty carbon-based energy to clean and sustainable energy. Now, that one, I think, is going to happen. I'm actually fairly confident about that. The fourth key driver of the future is a word that in some places sends people into a paroxysm of rage and in other places it makes people stand up and cheer and the fourth key driver is globalization now there's a word to conjure with i mean i can remember back in the late 90s there were meetings of the g8 in seattle there were protesters on the street and the protesters were probably right, because when you talk about the benefits of globalisation, well, there are no benefits unless globalisation is pursued ethically and sustainably. I'll say that again. I mean, it's got to be ethical and sustainable, which means that when a European or an American company or a Japanese company goes into a poorer country to establish an operation where it will employ people, it's got to do so in a way that is considerate of the local culture and respects the individual people with whom it's working. Now, when it's done like that, I think globalisation is the greatest force for world peace that exists. Because if you go into a nation and you offer a young man a good job that's well paid and that has prospects for his advancement, and I'm deliberately being sexist by making it him for a reason that will become clear in a minute. He will not take up arms against you. Offer a young man some money in the future, he won't become a bomber. It's straightforward. And that was why I made it a sexist remark. It's always young men. Nearly always young men. Since 2001, when China joined the World Trade Organization, 50 million people have been lifted out of poverty. 50 million people who were trying to live on $2 a day are now actually buying their apartment and they have a car. 
And that's an effect that's going on throughout India. It's an effect in parts of Russia, Malaysia, East Asia, parts of Latin America, the Middle East, even a couple of places in Africa. I mean, it is a fantastic phenomenon. About two and a half billion people are now working hard to get a little bit of what the developed world has. And once they've started on that course, they won't give up. And this engine of growth that's occurring in what they call the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, is not going to stop because of the credit crunch. It is an engine of growth. And other countries, other communities will join in. Globalisation, when pursued ethically and sustainably, is the most marvellous event of the last 10 years and for the next 30 or 40 years will continue to be the main driver of the world's economy. The fifth key drive, the fifth trend that I think is going to become very important in the 21st century is a triple or quadruple revolution in medicine. Um, in the developed world, uh, humans are going to live very much longer than they have in the past. We have seen longevity, the curve going up and up and up over the last 100 years in the developed world. world. Well, we're going to see it continue to go up. There doesn't really appear to be any identifiable limit on the top age for human beings. I'm personally not sure that I would want to live to be well over 100. But in theoretical terms, the arrival of DNA profiling in medicine the arrival of stem cell um, research and the regrowing and of organs uh, is another area of intense interest. Nanoscale medicine is yet a, another uh, huge area of interest. And of course the vast improvements in medical imaging are going to lead to a point that for the rich they may be able to rejuvenate themselves enhance themselves and extend their lives. Now, whether that is ethical or moral, at a time when we're going to have a world population explosion and we may have very considerable trouble feeding the people of the world, as indeed we do today, I'm not sure that I would like to focus my life solely on living longer and being younger. But there are people who will, and it's part of their human right to do so. It's not for grumpy people like me to say they should be stopped, but it's, it's very much for grumpy people like me to point out that we have far larger issues with the world population. But nevertheless, the revolutions in medicine are going to lead to most people in the developed world who are today under 40, living at least 30 years longer than their current highest estimate. So for people under 40 today, there's a very realistic prospect of them being a fit and youthful 120-year-old or 130-year-old. For people under 40 today, there is even the prospect of being able to live indefinitely. But whether anyone will want to take that, I don't know. Because I ask myself the question, well, if I was 95 years old, and if I was in fit good health with the body and the muscles of a 40 year old for example would I want to go dancing or would my mind be as tired 
as any 95-year-old man, no matter what my body looked like. We don't know, because humans have never had to face this before. But we are going to face this in most of our lifetimes. And that means that we will be finding out whether psychological tiredness is merely a symptom of decrepitude, or whether the mind itself ages. We don't know the answer. The sixth big trend that's going to affect life throughout the 21st century is accelerating exponential technology development. And we all know that the speed of technology development seems to be ever faster. Well, it isn't an illusion. It is ever faster. And over the next eight years, we're going to have the same amount of new technology arriving as we've had in the last 20 years and then the same amount again the next four or five and so on. And computer scientists who I respect have done some research and crunched the numbers and they suggest that as a result of the exponential increase in technology development we're going to arrive in 25 years time at a point where the first computers to be as capable as a human will arrive. Well, I'm sceptical about the timeline. I think it might be five or ten years later. could be twenty years later. But I'm certain that their predictions are right. I think it's inevitable that within a generation we will have computers that are as capable in many ways as human beings. And certainly we'll be able to pass the Turing test. The test of appearing to be a fully intelligent human being in a conversation. When that happens, the inevitable implication is that shortly afterwards, computers will be twice as capable as human beings. And then because of the exponential nature of technology development, soon afterwards four times as clever, eight times as clever, 16 times as clever and so on with the subsequent generations of computers being designed by the computers themselves, who are, of course, so much more capable than we are. And the question comes up, then, of should we build machines more capable than humans? Should we have regulations that prohibit it? And if we did want such regulations, would it be practical to think about the regulation of such things because it would seem to me that above all the military would want such things and the military in some countries would go straight ahead with it even if other countries had banned it and therefore I suspect the development of such machine entities is inevitable. Will we be in control of machines that are far more clever or capable than human beings, even if their, quotes, cleverness, end quotes, is limited to specific areas. Well, we already have our lives in the hands of machines. We already have computers flying aeroplanes, autopilots. We already have driverless trains, one of which has killed many people. We already have computers actually deciding diagnostics about our illness. As computers become more and more advanced, how are we going to teach them morals and ethics? Is it practical that we can teach them morals and ethics? And are they really about to become our successor species? My current research 
is in that area and I'm currently researching for a book that will be called Successor Species. So my thinking is clear from my selection of that title. But they could be our children that we love and foster and protect to take evolution forward or they could become our successor in a more sinister way. That's what's up for questioning at the moment. Very few people in the world, there are some, and certainly one or two at Oxford, very few people in the world are struggling to ask what the right questions are about this. We certainly don't have any answers, but we haven't even yet framed the questions about what we should do about moral machines. But I'm going to be spending the next year or two in trying to find some of those questions and set them down. Until a couple of years ago, I had come to the end of my key drivers, world population growth and climate chaos, uh, and the energy crisis and globalisation, the revolution in medicine, and I was finishing with accelerating exponential technology development. But I have become aware, through the work of uh, Paul Collier at Oxford, uh, of the bottom billion people in the world. In fact, there's a bit more than the billions, about 1.4 billion. But the phrase, the bottom billion, um, is, is the phrase that Paul Collier used for the title of his book, which was very, very influential when it was first published in 2007. Um, and these billion or so people are in 58 nation states, mostly in Africa, but not all of them. I mean, when you think of the ones outside of Africa, you can think of North Korea, think of Burma, Think of Haiti. These are places where people are playing no part in globalisation. And in the many African states, you have completely failed states. You have nations which are landlocked, nations which have no access to the sea, nations which have no infrastructure, no roads, no railways, uh, perhaps sometimes not even a proper airport. You have corruption that is endemic because corruption is the corollary of poverty. You have no institutions like legal, financial, civic institutions, and you have people with very little education. Now, why do I think the bottom billion is a trend, a growing trend, that will affect the century greatly? Well, the main reason I think it's important is that if in the next 30 years the rich and developing world does not reach out to these people, and help them, they'll come and get us. They'll come and attack us. They'll come not as one army of a billion people marching over the horizon, but they'll come as wave after wave after wave of terrorists, with one cause or another. It may be religious, but in fact the religious aspect of their cause will merely be a proxy for the fact that in fact it's about the haves and the have-nots. Because low-cost communications will allow these billion-plus people to see a little bit of the wealth we have, to see what our lives are like. And if we do not do something, and that means massive aid, it means massive, almost, almost uncaring aid, by which I mean that although corruption will occur, aid must still continue. Aid in education, above all. And that comes back almost 
neatly to my first trend, which is world population explosion. Because all the research has shown that when young women gain an education, women 13, 14, when they get some literacy, the birth rate in their region falls as the literacy increases. And the main reason that birth rate falls is not just that the women understand more about the role of contraception, it's more complex than that. But as women gain even a basic education, they gain the confidence to say no to their men. And saying no is the most important aspect of reducing an explosion in the world population. So those are the seven key drivers of the future. Mr. Hammond, you said that human beings are virtual apes and also that they are increasingly becoming virtual. What do you mean with this? Can you explain this? <laughs> of course. Firstly, I have to explain that when I use the word virtual, I use it in its original meaning and not in the way we use it today, which is to describe images on a computer screen, as in virtual reality. But the word virtual comes from the Latin virtualis, which means the efficacy and the power and the capability of agency of something that does not necessarily have a physical presence. And when I apply it to human beings, I'm talking about the product of mind. Now, when I talk about humans being the virtual ape or homo virtualis, I'm referring to the defining characteristic that separates humans from other primates on this planet. In the industrial age, philosophers used to say that the defining characteristic that separates humans from other animals is the opposing thumb. But they were, of course, in the industrial age, and they were thinking about engineering. They were thinking about mechanical things. Today we're in the information age, and it's clear to me that far more important than the opposing thumb is the product of mind that humans have. And when human mind developed, along came the first virtual element of language. Once we'd gained a large enough mind and a large enough larynx, our voice box, we gained language, which is wholly arbitrary. Language is just an arbitrary group of sounds that a group of people, for example, in the English-speaking world, we agree that table means a table, a ceiling means the roof above our heads, and the floor means the ground below us. But in other languages, the words are completely different. The sounds are completely different. They're just arbitrary, and they're agreed within a group. As humans developed, they did things like the modern humans painted cave paintings 40,000 years ago. Well, cave paintings don't seem very virtual, but they are, of course, because they are virtual depictions of the world that was around them, entirely virtual. And writing is entirely virtual. Printing, books are entirely virtual. People say, I don't like all this virtual stuff, I prefer a book. How ridiculous, a book is nothing but virtual, because it is merely squiggles on a page. What we have from it is the virtual communication of one person's mind or several people's minds, to other people. And when we distribute books, we distribute virtual information. 
Mathematics is also virtual. We measure our world with entirely virtual parameters. Navigation, longitude, latitude is entirely virtual. And of course the greatest virtual invention of all was money. Because money, as we've discovered recently, doesn't actually exist. Money is the concept of value transferred into a portable object or unit. And then a group of people all agree it has a value. Only sometimes they are more certain it has a value, and other times they're far less certain it has a value, so the value goes up and down according to their confidence in it. So money is entirely virtual. And over the last 5,000 years, since the invention of alphabetic writing, mathematics and money, we have developed virtual invention after virtual invention after virtual invention. Telephone, television, radio, what I mean, I can go computers, networks, internet. And for that reason, I think our defining characteristic as human beings is our virtual selves, our virtual constructs. And for that reason, I find the future of Facebook, of MySpace, of meeting places in virtual reality an entirely natural habitat for homo virtualis. It is a natural evolutionary step. And when you think about it, it seems strange that we are still attached to our biology. That's the strange part, but perhaps not for much longer. What do you think are the tendencies? What do you think will happen in the future with the virtual? Can you somehow provide us a future scenario? Well, I can't be sure. When I have to speak to business audiences, they want something that, that feels fairly well tested. And my seven key drivers of the future, I feel, are fairly well tested. But when I start to talk about our role as human beings in the future, I have to say it's far more speculative. Because I can't know, I can't even be sure that my instincts are right but I'll share them for what it's worth. It seems to me that within a few generations, human beings will begin a migration into a hybrid initially, partly biological, partly technological, which is already happening now, of course. I mean, we have many technological protheses like uh, pacemakers and false limbs and so on, but this is just the beginning. I think... In the long run, and I can't even put a century on that one, but in the long run, I think we will merge with the machine intelligence of our own creation. And I think finally, and once again, I don't know how far out this is, I think we will divest ourselves of our biological being, of our biological envelope, and then humanity, which will perhaps be then wholly technological and fused with machine consciousness, I hope carrying forward the morals and ethics and the spirit of humanity, perhaps even the spirituality of humanity, will at last be able to leave the planet because there will be no biological time constraints and no frailty of biology and I think our successors will at last be able to go out into space and colonise the universe. I think that's our destiny. I said earlier that we lack 
the language for a technological future. And one of the areas where I think that's most apparent is in our discussion and our talk about mobile phones today. Because mobile phones are clearly much more than mobile phones. They are cameras and their databases and their text machines and their music players and the GPS system and I've got a radio in mine and so on and so on. But we still talk about mobile phones. And that's rather like people talking about automobiles as being horseless carriages. It's to misunderstand actually what the future is. So if you can cast aside the term mobile phone, it's clear to me that that device will remain and will increase as the centre of our connectedness to the virtual world. Um, and it will overtake the desktop machine, the laptop and so on. And eventually I suspect that the what we today call a mobile phone will become a device that has new interfaces with us. Perhaps initially it will be images projected into spectacles we'll wear, which will allow us to see, as it were, uh, an overlay of whatever we're looking at uh, in front of our real vision. But I think in the longer term, we will actually have a neurological interface. And we may then choose to wear whatever the technological successor of the mobile phone is, either on our clothing or perhaps implanted under our skin. And we will be connected through that device and the networks to the global consciousness that is already, in my opinion, beginning to emerge in something like Google, the global brain. Uh, in 2000, I wrote a novel called Emergence, and the thesis of the novel was that independent consciousness would arise within dense networks and then would begin to behave independently, which uh, may yet happen, we don't know. But leaving aside fiction, it does seem clear to me that the mobile interface to the virtual world will become part of our bodies and we will find ourselves both at the same time in the real world and permanently inhabiting the vast virtual universe. So I would like to stress on the concept of futurology. How did you become an expert and an authority for something which does not exist yet? <laughs> It's a very good question. I asked myself as well. I was living in San Francisco in the 1970s, and that was the time of the personal computer revolution. Silicon Valley was racing to create personal computers that were inexpensive and capable. And I became so enthused about it that I actually did a short course of computer science to try and study and understand what was going on. Previously, I'd only been a writer. And I was so caught up by learning to program, learning in Lisp and COBOL and Fortran and BASIC and some of the other programs back in 1980-79-80 that I then started to write about what I thought computer technology, how it would affect society. And I wrote books like Computers and Your Child and The Musician and The Micro and The Writer and The Word Processor. I was just fascinated and inevitably it got me to speculating about the way it would impact as computers became more capable. In other words, what would happen in the future? And I turned up at a conference to give a talk in 82, I think, or 83, and I was billed in the States as a futurist. And I said, but I'm a writer. And they said, but you, you're writing like a futurist because you're, you're saying that you think this is likely to happen and that's likely to happen. So I thought, well, I suppose I am. 
And since that time, I've allowed people to use Futurist for me until I decided about 10 or 15 years ago, as I'm British and as I live in Britain these days, to actually use the British term, Futurology, because it allows me to make the joke about it being a ridiculous term. But if I were to describe myself as a futurographer, people would understand even less. Because I see the word futurology these days creeping into the mainstream press all the time. So perhaps it doesn't seem as strange as it did 10 years ago. What do you think provide a scientific character to your visions of the future? I've got to say that the only scientific aspect of my work is the empirical testing. In other words, my research as a writer tends to be the process of reading and then writing myself because I often find I don't know what I know until I start to write. And I think it was Oscar Wilde who said that language is the parent of thought and not the other way around. So as you begin to write, use language, so the thoughts follow. And I found that to be true. And my scientific elements are to identify those writers of the present and the past who I believe have a lot to teach me, to take in as much as I can of what they have to teach me, to try and come up with some original thoughts of my own through my writing, and then test them week in, week out with audiences all over the world. And the methodology lies in the testing. You provide workshops, seminars and keynotes for governments business audiences and NGOs. Mm. So how do you control the fact that your visions of the future won't be overblown or that this will lead to overreactions by, well, for example, governments? Yeah, I try to be very measured in what I say. And in my presentations, I try to balance both optimism and concerns. And I always try to be uh, as careful as possible um, I do sometimes uh, find in questions that people are made either overly optimistic or overly pessimistic by something I've said, and I try to correct them. But somebody said to me recently, well, how can you be an optimist when you've identified so many serious problems that we're facing? And I said, well, the reason I think in scientific terms I'm an optimist is that if you have a look at the curve of human progress over the last 150 years in the developed world, you'll see that with the exception of a couple of very serious setbacks like the Second World War, Stalinism, the First World War, the curve has been almost constantly going upwards in terms of the length of time people live, the uh, health they have during their lives, and the amount of money they have to live those lives. And that curve has been like that. And as a result of that, I think that despite the problems, human beings have the innovation, have the creativity to solve the problems. Nothing that I speak about, I don't believe, will actually fail to be solved. I think the energy crisis can be solved through new technology, but climate chaos has the potential to be the most worrying of all of the trends, I think, because we can't easily solve that in the time frame. But I haven't found any audiences to be overreacting in a stupid way. Never happened. It would be possible to actually whip up hysteria about 
for example, the dangers of world population explosion or the terrorism from the bottom billion. But I'm not in the business of doing that. I'm very much in the business of trying to present it in a measured and calculated way with all of the arguments weighed up, not in my nature to actually try and whip up any sort of for or against hysteria. What do you think about dystopian visions? Well, as a writer, as a novelist, uh, many of my peers have frequently written about dystopian futures. In fact, I have in one book, a book called Extinction. However, that's for fiction. It's fiction. Um, because as the French writer Mallarmé said, happiness writes white, which means nobody's interested in happy topics. You know, happiness is boring. Well, I'm glad to say in real life, happiness isn't boring. It's wonderful. But in fiction, sometimes you do have to go dystopian. I do not believe in a dystopian future in real life. I have enormous faith in human abilities and ingenuity. So what do you think about self-fulfilling prophecies? I think it's possible in the short term. Uh, you know, oh, there's going to be a recession, a recession, a recession, and there is one. I think that sort of thing is possible. But I think it's a very short-term effect. I don't think in the sort of field that I work in, which is... 20, 30, 40 years, it would be possible for me to make a prophecy and by making that prophecy make it happen. Because I don't prophesy, but what I do is identify what may have an effect later, although the effect will almost certainly turn out to be different in some way to the ways I suggest, because you can't see the future. You can only see those things that may affect it. Do you think it's important that business people and governments somehow change their policies according to, for example, your seven key drivers? Yeah, I mean, I find when I speak to governments that they, in fact, generally, they are pretty aware of what the big drivers are. I don't find people are amazed. I think maybe what I do is put them together in ways that they haven't thought about it before by clumping them together and in a longer talk than this showing how these trends interrelate may prompt them into some new ways of thinking but I don't think I'm telling them anything they don't already know I'm just perhaps shedding a bit of new light on it What do you do for business audiences? I last week I was in Barcelona for Nokia World 08 and Nokia have brought together over three thousand people of its community its software vendors the people who build the networks the people who sell mobile phones 3,800 from all over the world now what they want from me is entertainment is high on the list can I entertain over 3,000 people for an hour can I hold their attention secondly if you allow that I may be entertaining do I have anything to say to a 3,000-odd very busy people that will make them think that hour has been useful rather than wasted. In other words, can I tell them something that will be of use to them when they go back to their own offices? And the third thing is that can I tell them anything completely new? Well, at Nokia World, I told this audience what I thought the future of the mobile phone is. That was what I did. And 
from the reactions I got in the two or three hours afterwards, I spent milling around with upwards of 3,000 people, it seemed to me that quite a lot of them hadn't thought at all about the mobile phone becoming our interface to the entire virtual world, our software companion, our gateway to the world. And I hope they felt, and indeed was told that they felt, that it was very rewarding for them. So, entertainer, a lecturer that gives value, and perhaps somebody who prompts them to new thoughts. That's the job, really. Do you also inspire new technologies? I don't think I inspire new technologies. I'd like to think I inspire people. Sometimes I'm told that I do, and that's very gratifying. Uh, sometimes when I feel the energy coming back at me, I'm sure that I do. But I don't think I can inspire new technologies. Although, if I inspire a person who is an engineer or a designer to think about something new, wouldn't that be wonderful? That would be fantastic. What is the difference between your fiction production and your non-fiction production? It's, very, it's a very big difference, actually. Uh, fiction is like a laboratory where I can imagine, as I have done in the last few books, a world setting, shall we say, 2056 or 2065 or 2015. And I imagine the world without worrying whether I might be right or wrong. I just imagine the world. And then I put people in it, and I try to make the people as real as possible. And I can move them around in this world and see how they react. Like, I'm in a lab, and I've got characters, and I can see how their lives might change if they had the technology that I'm describing. So it's fun, and it's kind of theoretical research. When I'm doing non-fiction, it's stuff, my last book, for example, uh, I had peer-reviewed. I had peer-reviewed by Friends of the Earth in London. I had peer-reviewed by a professor of solar energy at the University of Sheffield. And I had peer-reviewed professor of artificial intelligence at the University of Maryland. And basically, when I submitted my 80,000 words to my peers for review, there were many comments that came back that made me adjust what I was doing. So in non-fiction, you've got a duty. You've got to try and eliminate fiction. In other words, if you say you think a trend is important, you better put your references in and say where you got these ideas from. And if you make a statement about the United Nations says that we're going to have 8.2 billion people, you better put your reference in so that other people can check that they actually did say that. So one's very real world and one's like a, a lab where I can play. You mentioned Aldous Huxley before. Yes. And I wonder what you think of the fictions of George Orwell yeah. and Aldous Huxley yeah. and what is the difference between what you do yeah. and their Well, in, in, in fiction, I, I'd like to think I do something fairly similar in fiction. But the equivalent to my speaking work and my non-fiction was George Orwell's political work and his essays and so on. But if we take George Orwell, the novelist, for a moment, when he wrote 1984, people imagined or thought he was setting it in the future of 1984. He wasn't. He wrote it in 1948, and he just reversed the numerals. And what he was doing was talking about what he imagined the future would be like, but the near future, 
not 84, if it was a communist state. So it was a brilliant piece of work, but a piece of work about the present, not about the future. Huxley, on the other hand, was very much about the future. He was very, very much into escaping what I call the bias of the present, the prism of looking through today's attitudes at the future, which, of course, will always produce a distorted view. And we can't tell what the mood or the zeitgeist of the future will be, which makes it very difficult to write meaningfully about it. Huxley, as you know, used mescaline and other drugs to help him escape the bias of the present. So when he wrote, for example, Brave New World, I think he was much more successful at a fantasy future than many other writers have been. How do you research? Well, on the book I'm on now, Successor Species, uh, I know um, of at least half a dozen people around the world who are deeply concerned about the issues of ever-increasing computer intelligence and where that may lead us. Some are very optimistic about it and almost want it to arrive tomorrow. Others are very worried about it and want to ask a lot of questions. Uh, Nick Bostrom at Oxford is one of those people in the world who is beginning to ask the big questions in an ethical, moral way about our relationship with machines. So what I do is I read their work, but I also have access to companies like IBM. I have access to senior people, and I'm able to put the questions to the people who are trying to do it for real. And by sitting down and talking with them and listening and sometimes having dinner and having a few drinks, you can get stuff that is only just forming in their minds. So, like any writer, you spend perhaps a period, a year or so, whatever, researching and making notes and gathering and thinking. And, of course, the more questions you gather, the more you galvanise your own brain to come up with some answers. And then, if you're lucky, at the end of that period, you should be desperate to start writing. There are many interesting set of themes on your website you talk about during your seminars yeah. and so on. So would you like to explain one of those a set of teams we didn't talk about? A good example of practical use for business in my talks would be the fact that ubiquitous networks are allowing companies to capture what I call business process intellectual capital. And I'm afraid that's a big mouthful of words, but what I mean by business process intellectual capital is capturing in the networks the way companies do things. For example, it might be designing a factory. It might be building a new design of yacht. It might be launching a new product. Whatever the process is, because we are arriving at a point of ubiquitous networks where not only are people interconnected, but inanimate objects will be interconnected, you can actually trace in the networks all the processes that were taken to build the factory or launch the product or whatever. And once the project launching the product is complete, you can capture the data from the networks and it has a value. For example, if a product launch cost 10, billion, 10 million pounds or 10 million euros, perhaps the value of knowing how to do that is worth half a million euros. In other words, if you know how they did it, 
you could actually apply it in much faster time yourself. Another example might be congestion charging for cities. So how do you build the cameras and the zone for congestion charging? How do you do the public consultation? How do you sort out the contractors and their tenders? Well, if one city's done that and they captured the steps they took, the techniques, that has value to another city. And they might want to buy some of that information to save them going through all the same missteps that the original city took. And this business process, intellectual capital, is actually a new form of wealth because we've not been able to capture it before. And new forms of wealth are of extreme interest to corporations, to organisations. So that's an example of topics I talk about that are outside of the seven key drivers. What do you think about the idea that the genes are nowadays the new key to mortality for humanity? Well, keen genes, in my opinion, have always been the ace card. In fact, genes, they say it's 50% genes and 50% environment. I feel instinctively, without evidence, that it's more than 50% genes. However, because of the fact that we are beginning to manipulate genes, and within... A generation, let's say 25 or 30 years, in the rich world, we will be able to manipulate the genes of the living, as well as about in those about to be born. It won't actually be the the, the governing concept, because we'll be able to change genes. I suppose what I feel is that what's going on now with our headlong rush into virtual technologies is a natural evolutionary step. It isn't something that should feel strange. It isn't something to be worried about if your teenager spends 10 hours a week on Facebook or more than that. It isn't something to be worried about if you find that all your communications are now virtual. It's, in my opinion, a natural next evolutionary step for the virtual ape. And I'm absolutely confident we'll find ourselves completely at home in our virtual future.